Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. This week is the second installment of Story Space at Columbia from the Office of University Life. If you haven't heard part one, go back to last week's episode and listen to it. But here's a quick refresher. Story Space at Columbia is a new storytelling project that presents personal and inspiring stories from students across Columbia. So today we continue with our theme of identity, with three stories about learning. Not the academic kind of learning that we find in the classrooms across campus. This is learning that comes from overcoming our fears and discovering our strengths. And just a quick advisory, some of these stories have some strong language that may not be suitable for everyone. Our first storyteller is a PhD candidate at the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences in Arabic and Comparative Literature. In this story, Sahar talks about finding the courage to stand up for dignity and respect in an unusual place, a supermarket-turned-mosque parking lot. So, back in the 90s, when I was in middle school... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some of you weren't born then, I don't know. Um, But back in the 90s, when I was in middle school in South Florida, a group of Nigerian, African-American, Trinidadian, Guyanese, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Indian, and Egyptian Muslims decided to purchase an abandoned supermarket. This abandoned supermarket was in a plaza that only had a church, and nothing else. And this abandoned supermarket was on the cusp of a working class neighborhood and two major highways. So these Muslims came together to provide a space for classes and prayer for a growing community. And we decided we wanted to open up by Ramadan. So in order to open up, we had to clean up the space. And I like to think that we provided the neighborhood with some safety and relief because that space had previously been known to provide a shelter for all kinds of nocturnal activities. So we cleaned up the blood stains in the back that perhaps were from the meat uh, that was left behind from the market. We scrubbed the floors, we painted the walls again, and we taped to the floors cardboard and placed over the cardboard pink bed sheets that people could prey on. Those days, it was pretty remarkable how safe everyone felt in that space, in that space of a growing community. We felt safe, and no one in the staff thought that we needed to check who was coming in and going out. Because it was a new space, we didn't have air conditioning installed, so we used to let, leave the doors open, the sliding doors, because it was a supermarket. So we'd leave the sliding doors open, where the exit was and the entrance was. And as you know, supermarkets usually have windows. Well, actually, if you're from New York City, maybe not. But (laughs) in the suburbs, back in the suburbs, uh, supermarkets have windows all along the front. So whenever we turn on the lights at night, you could see everything, what was going on. People were praying, kneeling, prostrating. Every bratty kid was running across the hall because they had unobstructed running space. So when the space was finally opened up during Ramadan, my mother decided that that year we were going to do Ramadan a little bit differently. In the past, we used to invite our friends to our home, 
and we would share uh, the breaking of the fast with friends and neighbors, and then we'd get together for the evening prayers. But that Ramadan, my mother decided that she wouldn't just cook for us. She would cook for whoever came to that space. And she would drag her kids with her and her partner, <laughs> and we would go after school, and we would serve the community, and we would serve food, and we would clean up, and then I would do my homework, I would avoid the creepier guys that were scoping. And if I felt particularly motivated, I would join the nightly prayers. You see, the nightly prayers were comprised of a recitation of the Quran. And it was during that month that it was the first time that I experienced the entire recitation of the Quran. And it was something I immensely enjoyed. And it was something that I never spoke about with my friends at school. Not because I was embarrassed, but mostly because I didn't think that they could begin to imagine what I would proceed to describe. I'd been to some of their fancy churches and their fancy synagogues and seen their suited attendees, and this didn't really come close. You know, cardboard, pink bedsheets, not close. It was also a space in which I was impressed by the vast international knowledge that came to it, its own cosmopolitanism. It was in that space that I learned to eat Nigerian jollof rice, Palestinian maklube, Trinidadian basapshat. It was in that space that I learned Arabic from a Bosnian refugee who would wear a swagged out suit every time he came to the mosque and never pray because he'd go out for a smoke. <laughs> and it was in that space that I learned from a Pakistani-American teenager that Muslims smoked pot too. Because according to him, the Quran only talks about alcohol, not weed, man. <laughs> and it was in that space that I learned from a black Muslim guy that Muslims not only dated, but they also cheated on their boyfriends and girlfriends. And it was in that space that I learned from an adult Egyptian man who broke down in front of my 12-year-old self and sobbed, crying about how difficult it was teaching American teenagers when you have an Egyptian accent. And it was in that space that I learned that the Venezuelan family that was, went to the same high school as me were actually Muslim. And they were of Palestinian descent, and they spoke Spanish and Arabic in a dialect that only their community understood. And it was in that space that I met the most rotten toddlers who would run around the mosque space um, and their Bosnian grandmother would chase after them with a slipper and they would talk about every single thing under the sun except for genocide. It was in that space that I learned so many things. And it was in that space that one Ramadan night that was particularly beautiful, the imam was really feeling it, he was reciting the Quran in high tones and low notes, and I decided to take a walk. I walked outside, and I started to pace back and forth, really enjoying everything, taking in the breeze, when all of a sudden I saw two shirtless white boys on bikes riding into the parking lot. I was a little bit curious, I looked at them, and I thought, all right, so, you know, they found some space to ride their bikes. And then I saw two Caribbean elderly women come out of their car to join in for the prayers. 
Before they could enter the mosque, the two boys started to howl at them. They started to howl and bark, like bark, like woof, 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 barking. And they began to spin their bikes around these two elderly women. One of them, who was a Trini grandmother, who I knew, and she looked straight in the eyes of one of the boys and said, you need to learn some manners. And she walked into the mosque. The guys spin their bikes a little bit, continued to howl and bark, and I thought that was it. But it wasn't it. They saw the open doors, and they saw the unobstructed running space, and they decided to take their bikes and ride in through both of the open doors. They rode into the mosque space while everybody was praying. They spin their bikes around all the congregants and continued to howl and bark. Everyone was in prayer, you know, when it's really awkward when you're like this, to be like, whoa, whoa, please, please stop your bikes, right? Because you're like this. So people continued to pray, and the guys yelped and they barked, they made their circle, and they came out again. So I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, all right, this is, this is, this is really messed up, right? So I'm looking at them and I can't think of anything really good to say or any really good way to respond. So just off the tip of my tongue, it comes out, jackasses. The guys, they turn towards me and then they stop their bikes. And one of the guys said, what did you say, Indian girl? And my throat ran dry. I realized that it was me and them. And the thing that I had separating me from the congregation was a window pane, a thick window pane and a wall that used to have taped on it sale prices of beef tenderloins and bananas. And I stood there and I looked at them again and I said, I said, you're behaving like jackasses. At that moment, it wasn't something that, you know, I was used to saying. It was something I heard my older brother say a lot, you know, a lot, when he thought somebody did something particularly dumb. Uh, but I was voted nicest in high school. It wasn't something that I said in particular to anyone's face quite often. But it was slightly thrilled and slightly scared that I'd found my voice. So one of the guys, he looked at me and he's like, I dare you to say it again. Say it to our faces. So I said again, I said, you're behaving like jackasses. So then one of the guys pulled out a chain. And he said, you see this chain? And then he shows me the little cross on the chain. This is about Jesus. What? <laughs> so I was confused then as well. And I was like, what? <laughs> then why are you outside and not at the church? And I gestured to the church that was right next to the Islamic Center. And then I said, you know, I don't think Jesus would be too happy with you guys doing this. And then I, you know, mentally imagine myself patting myself on the back for such a polite comeback, but then I beat myself up for not also saying Muslims believe in Jesus too. And then the guys were like, whatever. So I said, you know what? 
You just saw the whole world in there. You will never, ever travel and see the world like you just saw. So grow up, jackasses. And for some reason, at that moment, the guys, the teenage white menaces who were shirtless, hairless chests, skinny, 15, 14 somethings, turned into polite schoolboys. Maybe they were embarrassed that they were schooled by an Indian girl their age. So one of the guys tried to cover it up and say, whatever, we're leaving. And they biked away. And I walked inside, not really believing what I had just done, <laughs> feeling a little bit taller and a little bit wiser. And no jackasses ever rode their bikes into that supermarket turned Islamic center ever again. Finding courage and strength can come from within. Other times, the pressure to prove yourself comes from outside. Next up, Hadia from the School of Professional Studies describes how she learned to overcome criticism and discrimination by playing soccer as a little girl in Pakistan. So I grew up in Pakistan, and um, I think it's a country that tends to make headlines for all the wrong reasons. So you probably know it because of its socioeconomic problems or the fact that it has one of the most abject you know, records of uh, violations of women and girls' human, human rights. But what's really interesting is that even in a place that can seem completely devoid of hope, sometimes ordinary people, like a mathematics school teacher, his daughter, and her 13-year-old friends, can do something quite extraordinary. And it all starts with a soccer ball. So in this story, it's 2001. It is about 2.30 in the afternoon in the middle of May. And the sun, this is a merciless sun. Like New York City's heat wave has nothing on it. And it is beating down on this cracked cement floor that is supposed to be the basketball court that we play on. And we just finished basketball practice, so I'm helping gather all the basketballs and clean up. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a soccer ball escapes from the duffel bag, and it rolls right into the middle of the court. And I run over to it. And for some strange reason, I decide to kick it. And I watch as it sails right across in this perfect arc, straight into my coach's hands, and she's shocked. And then she says, we have got to get you playing football, which is what we call soccer in Pakistan. <laughs> Growing up in a country like Pakistan, I knew that it was just amazing for me to be able to play sports at all even if it was inside the four walls of my school. Because women and girls are not meant to be seen, they are not meant to be heard, and they are certainly not supposed to be running around playing soccer. Um, it is a land where there are invisible signs that barricade women and girls from entry into almost every aspect of life. So we didn't have you know, state-of-the-art gyms or soccer camp or lush fields to practice on or polished hardwood floors. We basically woke up at the crack of dawn um, to find empty parks, which were basically drought-stricken, so there was like a tuft of dead brown grass somewhere, and ripped nets in, in the soccer field in the goalposts. Or you played in the middle of the afternoon where the sun was basically trying to cook you well done, because that was the only time 
we could play without attracting attention from the men and boys. And it didn't matter how hot it was, you had to wear an oversized shirt and baggy pants because you had to do whatever you could to avoid the, the wagging tongues and the judgmental stares. And we did all of it for the love of the sport. And for me personally, in a land of closed windows and doors and minds, soccer meant freedom. So that year, I played my heart out, and I watched hours and hours of these recordings of soccer matches that my dad got me, and then I would play, I would practice basically in our garage, because I couldn't do it outside, and the scuff marks are still there on that wall from that year of hours of just me learning to kick and trap and, and dribble the ball. Um, I, I remember that the, the most amazing thing was that my you know, cheerleaders and coaches and champions were the most unlikely suspects in a country like Pakistan. They were my parents. So there was my mother who would ignore all the commentary from the neighbors who were very concerned about how tan I was getting. And then there was my dad. Imagine a 40-something, gray-haired, um, mathematics school teacher with glasses driving through hours of the most brutal traffic jams you can imagine, sleeping in a car with no air conditioning, outside parks, so that I didn't miss a single practice, so I didn't miss a single match. And he did it because he knew that there were always going to be voices that told me I couldn't, I shouldn't, I wouldn't. But we did. We did that year. So for the first time in the history of that city, four schools came together and there was an inter-school girls tournament for soccer. And my team won, and that's a great story. Um, and I can tell you, you know, great stories about like leadership and teamwork and what I learned on the field. But I think the most important thing for me was learning to play soccer on an unequal footing in an inherently unequal place because that was the best training that I could have gotten for life, which is the greatest unequal playing field that we are ever going to be on. And that's what brought me as an 18-year-old to this country with just a suitcase and a map and instructions on how to get to campus. Um, it was that that carried me through the most bizarre situations where there were always people telling me that I couldn't, I shouldn't, I wouldn't, because I was a woman, I was a minority, I was a foreigner, I was an immigrant. Um, and I realized that the answer to that is always going to be, I can, I have, and I will. Thank you. Some lessons you don't recognize until much later. In our last story today, general studies student Michael reveals a learning struggle that defined his past and a new concept that helped him become who he is today. Uh, so for high school, I went to this small all-boys school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We had to wear blazers and ties and our shirts had to be tucked in at all times. We weren't actually boys, we were gentlemen. Um, but I wasn't actually a gentleman. I was, I was a little bit more than that. I was God. I was given this nickname during my first year of high school and it just happened to stick throughout my entire time there. Literally everyone in the school would call me this name, even my teachers. Um, my 
my favorite English teacher, every time I would walk into the class, would literally stand up in his sweater vest and blazer as well and put his hands against his chest, give me a slight bow. I would walk by him and in reality what I really wanted to say was like, are you fucking kidding me, really? But like, he just, I would just give him like a fake smile and just move on. Um, kids would say things like, how many lives did you save today, God? Or when it was cold and rainy outside, why are you trying to punish us today, God? Please forgive us. Um, yeah, it was pretty ridiculous. Uh, I don't know the origin story of this name. I think part of it started because of just, you know, boys being boys and us trying to poke fun at each other any chance we got. But this name was extremely confusing to me because while it seems like maybe I'm this social guy who has a lot of friends and is called God, that's actually the exact opposite of the truth. I was this extremely anxious and depressed kid who was constantly closed off and lost in his head. Um, I barely had any close friends, and so this constantly made me ask the question, just why, why the fuck were my peers calling me God? Um, yeah, so despite how like, awkward and self-conscious this, this absurd name made me feel, um, it was also kind of flattering in a way. It pointed to other parts of my identity that were we're good. And so yeah, back in high school, I was one of the top students in my class, which definitely earned me some respect among my peers. And by respect, I mean they would come up to me before math or physics class and ask to cheat off of me and copy my homework. Um, I found this funny and disheartening because they would actually refer to me by my last name, Harley, when they would ask to do this. But immediately after they were done cheating off of me, they would go back to their old ways and say something like, thanks, you saved my life today, God. Um, yeah, and yeah, I didn't know what to really make out of all of this, but, but I did it anyways, even though it went against my morals, because at the end of the day, all I really wanted to do was to connect with the people around me, and that was one of the only ways I knew how back then. Um, but God supposedly isn't just smart. Uh, he's attractive, too. One day, uh, my classmate who's gay, posted a list in our locker room of who he thought the hottest guys in our grade were. And just keep in mind, I went to a school where there were 25 kids in my grade, so. I'm not, I'm not bragging at all. But, but I, I just happened to be at the top of this list. And being number one just drew more unwanted attention to me. Um, so yeah, and, and lastly, I think at the end of the day, like the real the real reason I was called God was because of who I was. I was this kind, generous, thoughtful, and hardworking kid. Um, and I think everyone in high school saw this in me. I just didn't see this in myself back then. So a few years ago when I was at Northwestern University, I was diagnosed with a nonverbal learning disability. For those of you who don't know, a nonverbal learning disability affects the right prefrontal cortex of the brain which is involved in picking up on social cues and understanding facial expressions, as well as other very important executive functioning tasks. Um, but this diagnosis was actually a great relief to me because it finally explained why I struggled all these years to connect with people 
the people who are all around me and make meaningful relationships and have them last and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, so coming, overcoming this disability has been a constant struggle. It's, I've lived in Chicago, Vancouver, and my home, New York, um, over the past five years, just kind of aimlessly bouncing around, not really knowing what, who I was or what I wanted to do. It's pretty directionless most of the time. But then I discovered the concept of neuroplasticity, which just means simply the brain's ability to change. Um, and this really excited me. And after hearing about this, I knew what I needed to do. So I attended this program where I attempted to change my brain. And it worked. I achieved the one thing I was never capable of, connection. And now I see the world in a completely new way. And I think I finally more or less understand why I was called God. I think my peers gave me this nickname that I couldn't hide from because it was their only way to connect with me. And that's the main point, that I've always been someone who is worth connecting with. Um, but life is funny. Just recently, one of my friends from high school uh, texted me to congratulate me on getting to the School of General Studies. It's my first year here. Uh, he went on to point out that Obama had gone to GS. His next text read, Looks like there are big things in store for your future, dot, dot, dot. I was in my room at the time, and I just looked at my phone and laughed. Honestly, I wasn't that surprised, even though it's been six years. Um, and then I asked myself the question, what would be the easier job right now, being president or being God? Thank you. Overcoming obstacles can teach us how strong and resilient we can be. When you look at struggles as another step in becoming your best self, the lemons life throws at you can make the sweetest lemonade. listening. This episode was the second in our series with the Story Space program. Stay tuned for our next and final installment on November 18th. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley, the Columbia Alumni Association, and the Office of University Life. To get event updates from the Office of University Life, download the University Life app by visiting their website, universitylife.columbia.edu. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.